0: we have come to what you might call the denouement of Genesis, the falling action. The conflict has ended, the climax has happened, the end is near, but this is the wrap-up. We've already had the encounter where Joseph saw his brothers again after all that time, kind of played cat and mouse with them for a little bit, and eventually forgave them. And Pharaoh agreed that he would send for Jacob and the rest of the family and bring them to Egypt because you remember they were in the middle of the seven years of famine that Joseph had prophesied. And so Pharaoh agrees to bring them to Egypt and that is what we're going to see tonight. That Jacob and the family will make the journey. They will also fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham back in chapter 15 as well as God-fulfilling promises that he will make to Jacob in this very chapter. So promises are the theme that we're looking at tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The Lord your God is the faithful God who keeps covenant. The Lord keeps his word. When God makes promises, he keeps those promises. And in a way, the book of Genesis has been a long story of God keeping promises. And that's important because at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, God made a cosmic promise that he was going to save the world. He was going to crush the head of the serpent. And everything that follows after that chapter hinges on that verse, on that promise that God is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so, as we read through the rest of the book, and God keeps the promises He made to Abraham in chapter 12, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, we can start to believe that God is going to keep that greatest promise that He made in chapter 3, and of course, also, the promises that God makes to us as individual disciples of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, let's read the first seven verses of chapter 46. Big chunks tonight as we go through two chapters, but I don't think they're too big. Certainly not as much as last week when I think we were doing a chapter at a time. So, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his son's daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So Israel, very significant that we see him referred to as Israel at the beginning of this chapter here because his name, you'll remember, was changed from Jacob to Israel at the brook when he wrestled with the angel. And this really is the first time we see these people spoken of as the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. And so it's very significant. And the first move he makes is to Beersheba. This is really only a 20-mile journey because they're staying in Hebron, which is near Bethlehem. Israel is a pretty small place. They're all pretty close together. But this is just a first initial journey that they make from Hebron to Beersheba. And he stops there and he offers sacrifices to the Lord. He worships before he leaves. We can imagine that he was trepidatious. He was afraid because he's going to Egypt. He's leaving the promised land. He had spent his whole life circling back to finally getting into that land. And he was about to leave it. And it had not worked out so well for his grandfather Abraham when he left and went to Egypt, had it. So he's going to stop and he's going to worship. Beersheba was the place where Isaac had lived for most of his life. It was where Jacob had lived before he left for Padan Aram, before he went to Laban. It was where Isaac had finally dug a well that he could keep. Do you remember that whole story where he was digging wells and the Philistines kept on filling in the wells? This is where Abraham made the covenant with Abimelech after the whole issue with his wife and Abimelech. So it was a place where they had seen God's deliverance. It was a place of family history for Jacob, and he stops to worship. And here God speaks to him in visions of the night. There's nothing that significant to that. It's just a dream, a vision in the night. The last words that God will speak in the Bible until Exodus chapter 3 and the burning bush. So you may want to mark that. These are the last lines you could say that God has until he calls out to Moses from the bush. And God reassures Jacob that I'm going to be with you. Do not be afraid. This sounds very much like what the angel will say to Joseph in the New Testament when he tells him to flee to Egypt with Mary and the baby Jesus. And he also reaffirms the promise that was made to Abraham back in chapter 15. You may remember this. In Genesis 15, this is when Abraham made the altar and he split the animals in two. Do you remember this story? And the fire passed between them. God made the covenant. This is at that story. When the Lord said to Abram, as he was known at that time, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." So you may remember that. We talked about the fact that God was not about to hastily judge the Amorites. Their wickedness was not so bad that God felt the need to annihilate them. God is patient. We discussed that. But he said, "...your children, Abraham, will spend 400 years in a land that is not theirs, first as sojourners and then as servants." And now God tells Jacob the same thing. You're going down to Egypt. Do not be afraid. Perhaps Jacob remembered this promise and knew that there was an affliction that was awaiting them in Egypt, even if it was not yet. But what we see here is the Lord has been aware of these developments all along. Before any of this happened with Joseph, before anything happened with Israel and Judah, God knew what was going to happen. He told Abraham long before it happened, before Isaac was even born, God told him that this was going to happen. So there's no need to fear. And he gives Jacob two promises of his own. Number one, you will go down to the land. You'll become a great nation there. And number two, you will come back from the land. And we know that by you, he says, I will make you a great nation and you will depart. Jacob is going to die in Egypt, but the great nation that he has become, Israel, is going to leave. So the two promises are you will go down and you will come back so do not be afraid." God is a sovereign God, isn't he? The Lord knows everything and it's very difficult for us to conceive of God knowing the future and I have a lot of fun with theological speculation of how best to articulate how God knows the future. There's the, the, the back and forth of does God have what's called middle knowledge, meaning does God know the future or does he also know all possible futures? Some people will say if God knows a possible future, then it, then it would be real because God only knows what is true. And then some people go back and forth on that. Some people, is God outside of time or is time not exactly a physical thing as we would conceive of? it? I find those kind of things interesting, but I don't know the answer. But what I do know is the Lord says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. How much higher? Higher than the heavens are above the earth. So the Lord knows. Isaiah 46.10, God compared himself to the false gods. He said, I'm real. I can see the end from the beginning. I can declare what's going to happen before it happens. And very often the Lord does. He tells us what's going to happen. He makes promises. He made Abraham a promise. Lots of promises. He makes Jacob here promises, and he's made to us promises as well. What are some of those? We're going to hit three here. What promises has God made to us as Christians? We are gonna do some obvious ones. Number one, salvation. We already talked about this. God promised in Genesis 3.15 when he was cursing Adam and Eve and the serpent and the whole earth. He said, one day the seed of woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. The one that had tempted them and caused them to go into sin would be crushed by a descendant of the woman. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent. He is the promised Messiah, the promised anointed one. The one that we've been waiting for and looking for. And Jacob and Abraham were looking forward to that day. But we have the blessing to look back on the fact that that promise has been fulfilled. Isn't that awesome? We get to live in the afterward, in the AD, <laughs> that He is the promised Messiah. He has crushed the head of the serpent. Number two, this is an important one the Holy Spirit. The regenerating, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus told the church after He'd risen from the dead, tarry first in Jerusalem. Don't leave yet. Don't start the mission. Don't evangelize anybody yet until you receive the promise of the Father. And that is, of course, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2. He came upon the church with tongues of fire and a mighty rushing wind. In Acts chapter 4, he re-upped the promise with shaking the building and sending them back out. And the Lord has constantly maintained his church by the fire of the Holy Spirit. You have the promise of the constant power of God with you. As we look out on the landscape of America and we wonder and we worry about the pressure that is rising against those who hold to the gospel and hold to God's word, what are we going to do? What are we going to say? The Lord said, don't even worry about that. My Holy Spirit will tell you what to say in that moment. That takes a lot of pressure off, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say when you're dragged before governors and kings. And not only that, you have the presence of God with you at all times by the Spirit. God is not up there. He's in here. He's with you. We've talked about this many times, but I love to say it this way. Jesus Christ was God with us. The Holy Spirit is God in us. Isn't that amazing? That's why Jesus told the disciples in the, in the book of John, I know you're sad that I'm going, but this is a better deal. It's a better deal to have the Spirit with you. This is the promise of the book of Joel and elsewhere. Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we get to live in the now of that promise. How cool is that? Amen. And number three, of course, the return of Jesus. One of the last verses of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two twelve. 12, Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon. I'm coming quickly. And I've got my recompense in my hand. That is, I've got my payback in my hand. And that's either good or bad, depending on how you stand before Jesus. He's coming back. He's going to rescue his people. He's going to establish his reign of righteousness forever. For a thousand years, he will rule with an iron fist, and we will say, thank you, Lord. He's coming back. That's a future promise. We're still waiting on that one. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. And every generation has its doubters that want to rise up and say, well, we just haven't understood that right. Jesus didn't mean he was actually going to come back. But we keep coming right back to the word, and that's exactly what he promised to do. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going that I may prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. And if I go, I will return and bring you to myself. The return of Jesus Christ. These are some great promises, aren't they? Those are big promises. Salvation, promise kept. Holy Spirit, promise kept. The return of Jesus will be kept. And you know, maybe God has given personal promises to you as well. Sometimes God does that. We should expect that. The people of God in the Word received promises from God. We read about Simeon in the temple, the prophet who the Holy Spirit had promised him that you will not die until you see the Messiah come. And that wasn't a national promise. He wasn't a writing prophet. He wasn't doing scripture. He was just a faithful man of God. And the Lord told him, this is my promise to you. God made promises through his prophets. He made promises through dreams, promises through the word, through answered prayers. You need to familiarize yourself with what God has promised. Open up your Bible and see what He's said to you. And also what he has not said, by the way. That because you feel like God has said something to you does not always mean that that's the case. How many times in the New Testament are we told to test all things. Read Hosea chapter 6, I think it is especially, where the people had this attitude that God's always going to be for us. God's always going to do the right thing. He's always going to come through. He's always going to save us. And the prophet Hosea comes in and says, you think that the Lord's on your side. You're looking for the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord for you is going to be a day of darkness and judgment. Why do you want that? So you can misunderstand But I don't ever want to take away from the fact that God does speak to us individually as people. And those promises, whether they're from Scripture, whether they're from from those around you, or from the personal voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart, those things will be your lifeline as you struggle through the wilderness of life. When you're going through tough times, or even times that are not tough, but they're just that dreary, mundane day by day, and you're wondering, am I actually part of this incredible biblical story or not? The promises of God are what are going to carry you through those times. And these two promises that God makes to Jacob here are what are going to carry him through the remainder of his years, not in the promised land, but in Egypt. Let's read now verses 8 through 27. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun. Sered, Elon, and Yalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Ezban, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Serah their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard, These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Yazil, Guni, Yezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So here's a little genealogy. This is not a new Toledoth section. We've already had the last of those. The generations of Jacob are the last generations of the book of Genesis. And here we have the list of all the family. 70 persons are in the family. And you can count it up and you, you need to know exactly how they're calculating this You've got to not count Ur and Onan because they died. You remember the whole incident with Tamar and Judah. They were the two that were struck dead. We're not counting daughters-in-law. We're not counting wives. But we are counting Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and Sarah, Jacob's granddaughter. She was the daughter of Asher. We've got Joseph and his sons, counting them, and we are counting Jacob himself. So we've got Jacob, that's one. The children, 13, 12 tribes plus Dinah. Grandchildren, 54, Great-grandchildren, too, So all that together adds up to 70. And then it says that there were 66 that went to Egypt. So that's not counting Jacob, and that's not counting Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. So that's how you get to those, those numbers there. Only a few notes, really, to draw out of this. We do see that Simeon had a son named Shaul by a Canaanite woman in chapter 46, verse 10. doesn't give us any more details on that other than she was a Canaanite. And then we have Joseph's children, of course, who were from Asenath, who was an Egyptian woman. Benjamin had 10 sons, which is interesting, because remember we were talking about how old is Benjamin at this point? Well, old enough to have 10 sons, so there you go. It doesn't say how many wives he had, so you don't need to think of them being born to the same wife necessarily. So they all set out for Egypt. Pharaoh had sent carts, remember, to carry all of them and all of their possessions. You've got to think of Jacob not as a poor man living in the desert. You've got to think, if you've ever seen one of those movies from the the Orient or the Middle East, a sheik, somebody living in the tents with the long beard and the camels. If you've ever seen the movie Hidalgo, I'd always think of that when they're out on on the race in the desert and there's the sheiks that are on all the tents and it's splendid but so different. That's who Jacob is. Now, why bother to give a list like this? You ever, you ever wonder that when you're reading through this? Don't be honest. Come on now. Well, it's so that you can have some ideas for baby names when you're, you're having children. <laughs> some of these are more, more desirable than others. I don't know if I've met an Ard before, but, you know, or Mupim, but there they go. Who knows? Times can change. So here's why. Number one, first of all, these are real people. And we look at this, oh, it's just a list of names. At at this time, in this culture, having a list and a genealogy, that was as as good as a contract. That was as good as having a DNA test. We have a record of their names. This is significant. These things were not just concocted and invented and put together. And I might say that if you were trying to construct a genealogy to fit some sort of special narrative or some sort of mythological thing, you might do a less clunky job about it than this sitting there making up, you know, 70 names. But second of all, God is keeping his promises. What did God tell Jacob when he saw the stairway going into heaven in chapter 28, 14? He said, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God had called Abraham the father of a multitude. When he had no kids, Genesis 15, 5, he said, go outside and number the stars if you can. That's how many kids you're going to have. This has been the whole theme of the book of Genesis from chapter 12 forward. Looking for a son to be born. Namely, we're looking for the son, reference in chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of woman. We waited for chapters and chapters for Abraham to finally have a child with Sarah. And Isaac was born, and it was glorious. And then Isaac's wife is having trouble having children too. And she almost dies in childbirth, giving birth to these twins. And they're both rotten. (laughs) Esau's no good. Jacob's no good. But God gets hold of Jacob and takes him back to Padan Aram, to the house of Laban. And he has 13 kids. And those kids begin to have kids. And you almost can miss it because we focus on Joseph for a while. And it's been so long since we were watching Abraham lament that everything I have is going to go to my servant from Damascus in my house. But from all that, with all their mistakes, all the issues, all the problems, and they were many, we finally have the children of Israel. Finally. God has just promised to keep Jacob safe. I'm going to bring you down and I'm going to bring you out. And before we embark on that story, we are immediately reminded of the last promise that God kept, which was to make Jacob a multitude, to have many descendants. We're finally seeing the reality of that. You've got to connect these two things in the book of Genesis because remember, it was written as a book, right? It it was written with these callbacks on purpose to remind us of these things. The genealogies aren't just dropped in there for fun. They're put there to remind you. God's promising Jacob. How do I know? Because look at all these kids. We're having to manage 70 people plus their wives, plus all the cattle and the servants and the hangers on and everything else. And not too long ago, it was just Abraham and his wife. God kept his promise. This is why we have to maintain testimonies, everybody. You've got to remember what God did last time. You've got to remember that. Because when you face it, you're looking something tough dead in the face. God says, I'm going to get you through it. But you say, I just don't know how. You've got to remember what happened last time. You've got to remember. Do you remember how Abraham twice lied about his wife? And his wife got taken into another man's house twice. And we're saying, Abraham, what's wrong with you? Didn't you see what happened last time? Why would you do this twice? Why would Peter deny Jesus three times? Come on, didn't you get it up the first time? Don't we make the same mistakes, though? Don't we do things over and over again? Don't we fret about every trial, every time the bills look like they might be late, every time you look like you might be sick, every time somebody in the family is doing something crazy, we panic? But didn't God get us through last time? I hope we all can remember the last year that we went through and how frightening it was. And you know, we move out of it now. We're like, oh, yeah, this was, was nothing. It was a bunch of no- nonsense. We all kind of overreacted. Don't you remember what it was like? We didn't know what this thing was going to be. You heard words like coronavirus. We didn't know what that was going to be. We saw the, the unrest sweeping across the nation in an election year. No side had a monopoly on that. We're like, what's about to happen? What is going to go down in this country? you got to remember all that because we prayed a lot. Do you remember? At least I did. I prayed a lot. I was in the word a lot. I was saying, Lord, it's got to be you doubling and tripling down on Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the next time something like that comes up, we can't panic like we've never been there before. We've got to be like, no, I've, I've been down this trail. It's the valley, the shadow of death. Yeah, but I've been here before. And the last time, God kept me through. That's why you have to maintain your testimony. You've got to share it with people. That's why you got to get plugged into a small group a ministry team, something, where you can tell people what's going on in your life. They can watch you walk through it. If God's healed your body, folks, you got to tell people, because sick people need to know that God does heal people. He is still in the business of healing the sick. If God's provided for your financial needs, you got to tell somebody, because there are a lot of people struggling with the bills, struggling with the money, struggling with income, waiting on the check to come in that hasn't come in yet. You got to tell those stories. If God's healed your marriage, If God's provided a way for you to move forward through impossible situations, tell your story. I would love to think of Jacob with his his great-grandchildren at his side while he's riding on one of those carts. And he said, we're going to to Egypt. And I'm nervous. I'm scared. What's going to happen? Aren't they bad people there? Yes. But do you see all these people all around you? When I was just one person sleeping on a rock in Bethel, God came to me and said, you're going to have so many children, you won't be able to count them. Now look all around you. God's already kept a promise. He's going to keep the next one. Maintain your testimony. God promised me a long time ago he was going to make me a pastor. I remember that so vividly and so specifically, that story. I'm not going to bore you with it. I've told it before. The Lord told me, this is what I have for your life. And I couldn't shake it. I still can't. I wouldn't want to, but I can't shake it. I can never trick myself into thinking that didn't happen. God made a promise, and he kept that promise. I went to Bible college and seminary. I didn't want to. Catlin will tell you that. I did not want to go. Because my thought, and I still feel this way, although I think I'm a little more mature in my understanding, is those people that go to those Bible colleges and seminaries, they go in, they get all the spiritual life sucked out, and they get filled with a bunch of weird ideas, and they're no use to anybody. That, That happens. And I watched it happen all around me. But I was like, Lord, I have this opportunity to go. Should I go? And that was one of the most profound moments where God spoke to me saying, yes, I want you to go. And I thought, Lord, this is going to cost money, and we don't have this money, and I'll just wait for you to provide it. You provide the money, and then we'll go. You know, I'll put a little Gideon thing on a fleece out there, right? You know what the Lord told me? He said, I am just as able to provide for the payment of your student loans than I am to give you all the money at once right now. And I was like, okay, Lord, we'll see. And here I am. My, have been through that. My family went through that. We're out on the other side. I'm grateful for it. And the Lord is, is just about to finish paying off all those student loans that he said. Right? It's awesome. The Lord, the Lord guided me to plant this church. I knew I was supposed to come here. God, show me clearly. I'll never forget this. I came down to, to Birmingham and stayed at my brother-in-law's house. And this was my first place I had scouted to go plant a church. So I had a long list of places. Topeka, Kansas was on the list, weirdly enough. I, don't, I just remember that one that sticks in my brain. And I came down and stayed at my brother-in-law's house, and I was uh, walking around down there, and I was sitting on a bench praying. It was night, so I couldn't even really see anything. I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I really very strongly felt the Lord say, this is where you're going to be. I'm like, all right, Mr. Enthusiastic. It's the first place. You know, it's like when you're house hunting or you're looking to buy a car. Don't get the first one. You know, look. But the Lord just told me, this is it. I'm going to set it all up. You don't got to worry about it. I'm trying to plan it out, and I couldn't really think it through. God's like, I got this. And the next day, I met Steve Holloman. I just made a random phone call to a guy named Steve and set it up, and, and here we are. God told me. He made promises. I should tell those stories more often because we got to rehearse the good things God has done. When he provides for us, when he guides us somewhere, when he heals us, tell those stories. That's why God gave Israel all those holidays. Remember what I did for you, he said. Jacob could trust that God was going to keep those promises because he was surrounded by the reminder that God had kept the last one. Amen? All right, let's finish up this, well, almost finish up this chapter. We'll go verses 28 through 30 here. Just a quick thing. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Little note, verse 28, as we've called out a couple times, Judah is still leading the family. He's the one that leads them into Egypt. And we know that The kings, David and his sons, would come from the tribe of Judah, as would the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ himself. They arrive in Egypt. Joseph and Jacob reunite with each other. Joseph has been known for the last years as Zaphonot Paneah, second in command. But right now, he's just Joseph. He's 17 years old again, and he wants to go and see his dad. Remember the last time he saw his father? His dad said, go check on your brothers, and then I'll see you when you get back. And he hadn't seen him again for decades And he weeps on his neck for a long time. I would imagine so, right? Mm -hmm. Jacob had said in chapter 37, he said, I'm going to go down to the grave mourning for my son. And I wonder if he had kept that. Now, this is not I'm going to cry the whole time. The idea that seems to come from that verse, at least, is I am going to remain in a formal state of mourning until I die. That's when they would wear the sackcloth and the ashes and that whole thing and Maybe he was, of course, exaggerating, but the point he's making here is I can die happy now. Let me die as in, all right, my life is is right where it needs to be. I've got everything that I've ever wanted because you're alive. Can I briefly just say here, as we're talking about God fulfilling promises, God does not delight in your pain. He desires joy and peace and hope for your life. And that character of his is why we trust his promises. Because God is good and kind and gracious. When he makes a promise that is a good thing, we know that he's not pulling our leg. James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. When the Bible says do not be deceived, why is that? Because we are about to talk about something that a lot of people are deceived about. A lot of people get this one wrong. So do not be deceived. Verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See, don't, don't be deceived. God is not out there looking to smite you. He gives good gifts. And if you've got a good gift, it only comes from God. He delights in the happy reunion of Joseph. And Jacob, he doesn't delight in the ripping apart of the family. In John 11.35, remember Jesus wept because he saw Mary and Martha and the crowd weeping over his friend Lazarus. That's the heart of God. When he sees pain and death and suffering and misery, it breaks his heart. Too often, we try to minimize the promises of God that make such wonderful promises to us. Because we have some pseudo-religious belief that pain and suffering are more spiritual than joy. Can I just tell you that's not true? Joy is just as and maybe even more spiritual than suffering. God puts us through suffering so that our joy may be full. This is so sad. And there are those that have abused this idea. There are more probably who have spent too much time on this idea but i'm just going to say it even though it's been said the wrong way before god wants you to be happy god wants you to be happy and that's not at the expense of holiness god knows the way for you to be happy in this life is to serve him and be holy because sin breaks up your life and god knows that and sometimes he has to be stern with us but god wants you to be joyful and happy the fruit of the spirit is love joy (laughs) peace patience kindness gentleness, self-control, that's who God is and that's who He wants you to be. Consider Jesus. Did Jesus delight in all the demon-possessed people that came to Him? No, He healed them all. He cast them out. Even though He knew some of them would spit on His name later. So, listen, when you read the promises of God in Scripture, don't immediately act like some sophisticated Bible student and say, Yes, yes, yes. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. But you better ask according to His will, because He's not just going to give you what you want. Listen, that might be theologically true, but you've just taken a word that God gave to encourage and uplift us, and you've gutted it and replaced it with the opposite message. Don't do that. God desires to see your life full of joy, so believe His promises. Maybe you were hurt when you were a kid. Maybe somebody who should have loved you didn't. Somebody promised something to you and did not keep that promise, and it wrecked you. And now you read promises from your heavenly father, and you go, nah, I'm not going to get fooled again. I'm telling you the Lord is a good father. Evaluate his promises by his character, not by your experience. His faithfulness, his kindness, and his love. This relationship that we see here between a father and a son is the kind of relationship God wants to have with you. Verse 31, and we'll continue into chapter 47. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought the flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Okay. So Joseph tells his family... I'm going to take you before Pharaoh. He's going to take five of his brothers. Not going to bring in all 12 at one time, right? He says, when, when he asks what you do, tell him that you are herdsmen, your shepherds. This is remarkable. And another little note as we get to the end of Genesis, the, the patriarchs have had a bad habit of going before foreign kings and lying about themselves, haven't they? Amen. This is my sister, it's not my wife. But he says, this time, fellas, we're going to tell the truth. (laughs) I know that the Egyptians hate shepherds. They're a little creeped out by you spending all day with animals and your long beards and everything. But we're going to tell the truth. There's a whole other lesson to be taught here that even though the truth might seem like the wrong thing to say, it's usually the best thing to say. But I'm just going to leave that and we'll move on. He says, because if we do this, we can get the land of Goshen for your flocks and your herds. Now, Goshen is the name of a part of Egypt that we only have in Scripture. It it was probably a Semitic name for Goshen. or Maybe it's just an old one. But we also know this as the land of Ramesses, as he says there. It's in the northeastern part of what's called the Nile Delta. The Nile River is interesting because it is a north-flowing river. It doesn't flow south like the Mississippi or all the normal rivers of the world, but it flows north because it empties into the Mediterranean Sea. And as it gets closer, it it doesn't have one exit point. It spreads out in this this triangle shape called the Nile Delta where the, the ground is fertilized by the water that spreads out there. And it's one of the most fertile places in Egypt. Because remember, Egypt is in the middle of the desert. And the only reason Egypt survives is because they're right on the banks of the Nile, which overflows every year. Now, the Nile Delta has even more water So it's always fertile. So this is the best part of the land. And if you've got flocks and herds that need to graze, that's where you need them to be. So they come and they say, we are shepherds. We are herdsmen. And you've got to remember that Egyptians were wary of herdsmen. In fact, history tells us that most of the time, the head of Pharaoh's flocks and herds and livestock was a foreigner. Probably because that's a job that no self-respecting Egyptian wanted. I've said this a million times. This is why in all the the pictures and all the depictions, the pharaohs were bald or they had just the one little piece of hair and the women wore wigs because hair creeped them out. They thought it was dirty. They were very careful about being clean. And so when here comes this guy from Israel, from Canaan, and he spends all day with cows and sheep and he's got these long robes on that are dusty and he's got this big long beard. For them, this was very, very Uncouth, like the barbarians that we talked about on Sunday a few weeks ago. And so they're put in charge of not only their own, but of Pharaoh's herds as well. The Lord is already blessing them. And Jacob meets Pharaoh, and this is so interesting to me, because it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh, not the other way around. I I have an impression from reading this, and I didn't get this from anywhere, so I may be wrong, but Pharaoh strikes me as a younger Pharaoh at this point. Because Pharaoh is the one who is concerned with his dreams and is calling on all the wise men. And then he's faced with this big problem and he relies on this man to handle it for him. And here the older man is blessing him and he's asking him how old he is. I don't know. It just strikes me as maybe he was younger and that's why uh, the Lord sent somebody like Joseph into his life to help him to rule. And he says, Few have been the days of my life. I'm 130. Abraham had died at 175. Isaac had died at 180. Jacob is 130, and he knows he's slowing down. Very humble, also really kind of pessimistic. Just kind of sounds like the sort of thing Jacob would say, doesn't it? Turn Jacob from before into a cranky old man, and few and evil have been the days of my years. Let me say 130, man, few days. The first promise has been fulfilled. The nation has come to Egypt, and they've been blessed there. Often the Lord will give us promises in stages. You ever found this to be true? Like God will fulfill the promise he made in stages, one piece at a time. And we're impatient and we want it all now. Like that kid from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I want it now. The Lord's like, I know what's best for you. And when we receive the fulfillment of the first stage of God's promise, that should not communicate to you, oh, well, I guess I overthought what God was going to do. What it should communicate is if God has already done this piece, he's going to do the next piece and the next piece. For example, Jesus Christ has come to pay for sins. But in the Old Testament, it prophesied that he was going to also rule and reign and judge and have a grand kingdom that spanned the whole world. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for the second stage of fulfillment. It's not good to evaluate every step of your life as if it were the last one. Don't we do that? We act like the movie's almost over when you might be at the beginning or the middle and you don't know what's about to happen next. And we start evaluating everything and talking about everything like it's done when God's like, hold up, I'm still working. It's not finished. I'm still going. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's why we not only rehearse our testimonies from the past, you've got to celebrate the present victories as they come. And don't be so quick to talk about them as if this is everything, because you can shortchange God. For example, you need a lot of money provided. You've got a serious problem, you need the money provided. So the Lord provides some of it. And then you go and you go to turn that in and the person that you're turning it into says all right you know what i'll give you an extension because you've got this piece don't then come in and say god fulfilled his promise and uh i don't i don't need any more everything's all set the lord's like i've only done the first part i might have more for you remember the story of elisha when he was dying and he gave the king the bow and he said this is the arrow of victory over syria shoot it out the window and and he shot it and he's like why don't you keep shooting If you knew this arrow represented victory, why didn't you just empty that quiver, man? Sometimes we do that. Jesus told us to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to always pray and never give up. So a lot of times it's in the gaps between stage one and stage two that we learn the most. So don't miss it. Verse 13 now. This is a very strange passage to our ears, but I think it says more about our ears than this passage. So let's read it. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone." And Joseph answered, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. That is a historically verified fact that that's exactly how it worked, which is just one more reason for us to believe the scriptures. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land." And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So the famine grows worse. So the people spend all their money getting the grain they run out of money, they trade all their livestock. Then they sell their land and give that to Pharaoh. And then they sell themselves into servitude in order to pay for it. Now we hear that. That sounds unthinkable to us. That, that, that is not an option any one of us have ever considered. Well, having trouble making my car payment. Maybe I'll go down to the dealership and, and see if they'll take me as an indentured servant. <laughs> you might feel that way, but that's not exactly what we do. But I want to draw this out. This was the culture of the day. That you did not get things given to you. Everything was in exchange and up to and including your own labor and your own body. And this was the case in our time not that long ago either. Many people coming to America in those early days came as indentured servants. They came and they worked for their boss, whoever it was, for seven years. And then they were free because they couldn't afford passage to America. And we also need to see that the people were grateful to Joseph for his kindness. When you're about to starve, man, if you ever read stories of the Holodomor, the starvation that happened in Ukraine in the early Soviet Union, when when you're hungry, you'll do anything. And Joseph is not being stingy with the people, although he is insisting that they pay as long as they have something to pay. The point you're supposed to get from these verses is that Joseph remains a good steward to his master. He was a good steward for Potiphar, even though he was a slave. He was a good steward in prison, even though he was unjustly accused. And he's now a good steward to Pharaoh, even though he has everything. He's not slacking off. He's consolidating power for Pharaoh, who was his earthly master. These are some cultural things that are hard for 2021 Americans to hear. The idea of authority. We don't even like that. We say, yeah, you're, you're president, you're senator, you're governor, but you work for me. Consent of the governed, man. I can vote you out if I don't want to. You've got to come and make nice with me if you want to keep that job. That's not really how the Bible talks about it. And I'm not contesting our own culture. I'm saying the Bible says, when God places somebody in authority, it's because God wanted them in authority. And we hear the idea of selling your land and selling your own families into servitude. Now, again, as I've said many times, you mustn't think of plantation slavery as we had in our own country several hundred years ago. This is, you work, but you're working for me. You don't get to decide your own work. You don't get to decide how you want to work your own land and so on. It wasn't exactly a picnic, but to be clear, they're grateful to Joseph for this. And I'm not suggesting that we, as a culture, take any of these things on for ourselves. <laughs> what I will say, though, we, we must not make the mistake of assuming that the, our way of doing things is the right way of doing things. And that everybody else has gotten it wrong. And we are just lucky enough to live at the one time where everything is done right. There are certain things that the Bible records without making a moral judgment on it. And maybe we ought to consider doing the same in certain cases. Later on, God will permit the children of Israel to do both of those things. If you need to sell your ancestral land to pay off a debt, you do it. If you need to sell yourselves or your family into slavery or servitude to pay off debts, you may do it. But in Leviticus 25, God instituted something called the year of Jubilee, which was every 50 years, all debts were forgiven, all land returned back to its ancestral owners, and every slave was freed. Not a bad system, huh? The point to get from this passage here is that Joseph remained faithful in his work as a testimony to his God. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Egypt was blessed, it consolidated power, and it was actually after this time that Egypt would rise to its ultimate prominence and would remain so for thousands of years. Joseph believed all along that God would bless him if he did well where he was placed. Even if it wasn't where he wanted to be. And that is the attitude that we have to have too. We're waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. And you might not like where you've been placed. You might not like your lot in life. Maybe it's your own fault, maybe it's not. But Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He says, if you want to shine the light of Jesus Christ around the world, wherever you've been placed, whether it's slavery, whether it's prison, whether it's the second in command of the whole world, do it without complaining. Without grumbling, do it well. When you've got a promise from God, that hope drives you to do well in all things. When you know that you're running a race and someday there's going to be prizes handed out at the judgment seat of Christ, that motivates you to do well. That everything is affected by the gospel. If you're waiting on God to fulfill a promise to you, don't be passive. Don't be a powder waiting in the corner until God does what he said. God is not going to bless that you be an active participant in your life. You might not be in the promised land yet, but you're in Goshen. You're somewhere. He has given you blessing. So take advantage of it and do well like Joseph did. Picking up verse 27, we go to the end of the chapter now. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Well, time goes on. Joseph gets 17 years with his father at the beginning of his life, 17 years at the end of his life. Until his father is old. He knows his time is coming. And Israel makes Joseph promise not to leave him in Egypt, but to carry him back to Canaan, where he can be buried in the cave of Machpelah with Abraham and Isaac. Jacob would not live to see the promised land again. But he trusted that God would make it so. And he was willing to die in that hope. Remember the centurion that had a servant that needed to be healed? And Jesus said, I'll come to your house and I'll heal him. And he said, I'm not even worthy for you to come to my house. Just say the word and I know he's healed. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus marveled at his faith. Because the word of Christ was enough for him. He didn't need to see the proof right before his eyes. He said it and that was enough. The same was true for Jacob. He wasn't going to see the things God had promised, but he trusted that they would be so because God had said it. Job 13, 14 says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Do you have faith for the next promise no matter what? Do you believe that God is going to provide for you? The Bible says, I've never seen the righteous suffer hunger. Do you believe that God is going to provide for all your needs according to his riches and glory? I don't know, because if I don't get that money by this time, it's it's lights out for me. Lord's like, I've got this one. Do you believe that God will empower you for ministry? That He's called you to preach, He's called you to evangelize, He's called you to sing, He's called you to encourage, whatever it is. Do you believe that God is going to give you the strength you need to accomplish that? Don't, Don't let God call you to do something, and then you take a look at yourself and see if you measure up. God got mad at Moses for that. He got mad at Jeremiah for that. He said, no, no, no. I will be the one to supply that power. Do you believe that God will comfort you in your affliction? Or do you feel like you're stuck? I'm I'm just going to have to learn to soldier on. God's like, I'm here to comfort you. The Holy Spirit is our parakletos. It can be translated comforter. The one that takes us in his arms and loves on us. Dads, especially you. You've got to be strong for everybody else. Everybody comes to you. Everybody needs your help. The Lord is there to be your help. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back for you? Oh, I, just, I don't know things are getting so bad. God, you got to do something now and if you don't do something now evil's gonna win. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? You know I've, I've thought about this before how remarkable it was that Israel was brought back into their land in the 1940s and Wow, all of a sudden, all these prophecies that were made about Israel seem that much more plausible. Jesus must be coming back soon. Well, yes, I believe he is. But you know what the scripture tells us? There's nothing that is hindering Jesus from coming back now. So what would happen if some of these signs were to dissipate? What would happen if Israel were to be driven out of the land tomorrow? What would happen? Well, that can't possibly happen. There's no scripture references that say that can't happen. What if tomorrow all the enemies that we think seem to be lining up that are going to attack Israel? What if tomorrow they all decided they were going to be all for Israel and and pro-Jesus? And what if revival swept? There's some people I feel like they'd be disappointed if revival swept through the world because, oh man, the rapture was going to happen. It was so wicked. I just... well All the signs. We're not looking for signs, guys. Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. like a thief in the night. Everybody's going to be saying everything's great. And then pow, here it comes. Do you believe he's coming back? I do. Do I believe he's coming back soon? Yes. Why? Because he said I'm coming back soon. Not because of anything I see on the news. That's all interesting and exciting, but you know what? Jesus said, even the son doesn't know the day or the hour. Only the father knows that. Right? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Jacob was done fighting God. He'd fought God his whole life, but he trusted him now because he had the word of God. He said, I brought you down. I'm going to bring you out. And so should you. You've got the word of God. You've got the written word. You've got the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. You've got God's people all around you. If we learn anything from the book of Genesis, especially the saga of Joseph, it is that God is in control. And that when he makes a promise, you can take that to the bank. Countless Christians have died in that hope not seeing anything, not seeing any of the glory that they were sure was right around the corner, stretched out upon the rack, crucified, their skin flayed off, their heads removed. But they died in hope. And I pray that I may be worthy to follow in their train and to maintain that testimony just like they did and just like Jacob exemplified for us here. The world, the flesh, and the devil love to scoff at the promises of God. 2 Peter, specifically talking about the return of Jesus, said, Knowing this first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying, you say that God intervenes. God's never intervened. Everything has been just like this forever. When you look around and you see that Joseph is gone, You see that the famine has come, that you're growing old. It's tempting to doubt God and to doubt his promises. But God is good. He's kept his word so far. We should trust him for the next step and the step after that until Jesus comes. And you know, it's things like this. As simple as this is, simple lesson tonight. Trust God to keep his promises. You can learn that when you're four years old, can't you? But it's, it's a different matter when you've got to walk through it. Jesus said the road is narrow and it's hard that leads to life. And there are few that find it. And this is one of the things that makes it hard. Most people quit. Do you know that? Most people who start following Jesus quit. They give up. And it's not usually because they were presented with a remarkably sophisticated argument of how none of this can be true. It's because something painful hits their heart and they just can't take it anymore but we must carry on with endurance like Jesus did at the cross. With the joy set before him, he was willing to go through the pain. We've got joy waiting for us on the other end so we can endure whatever pain may come in obedience and in faith. And I'm gonna close with the words of a song. You know, it's, it's of course very common for preachers to end with classic hymns, you know, and all the wonderful doctrine that are, that's in there. I'm going to end with a contemporary worship song because that's my generation, but it's, it's good. We've sung this before, but Christian Stanfill wrote a song. He said, promise maker, promise keeper, you finish what you begin. Our provision through the desert, you see it through till the end. The Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages. From this darkness you will lead us and forever we will say, you're the Lord our God. In the silence, in the waiting, still we can know you are good. All your plans are for your glory. Yes, we can know you are good. The Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages. From this darkness you will lead us and forever we will say, you're the Lord our God.